everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Rethinking Supply Chain. I'm Diana Chen, and I'm here with your host, John Abrams. Hey, John, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. Great. So today I want to dive into another episode that we previously covered. So in the last episode, we revisited episode 35 with guest Phil Renaud, the executive director of the Risk Institute at The Ohio State University. And today I want to talk about another thing that we had discussed with Phil, which is about building a just-in-case supply chain. And Phil's take on that was that nobody nobody just builds a just-in-case supply chain, right? So I want to dive a little deeper into that. I think there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with him. And, and um, by the way, I just want to point out that uh, while we don't have a guest today, I like the fact that... Uh, you and I get to spend time unpacking some of these episodes. There are, uh, we're, we're over 50 episodes now into the Rethinking Supply Chain series. And when we have guests on, it is, it is amazing to me how much information gets packed into a 20-minute dialogue. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is that those 20 minutes don't give us the luxury of getting into or expanding on some of the topics and, and Phil's time with us. Um, and I, I trust he'll come back and visit with us again, but uh, he, he had really insightful perspective. He used to work at DHL before joining the Ohio State. So he's got not only lived experience, but he has a whole bunch of input from people who he works with in the world of risk, insurance, supply chain. Uh, and so he's he's got really interesting perspective. And it's, it's kind of cool to have somebody focused on risk uh, talking to us during the, the COVID-19 pandemic as we're, we're still in, in late uh, 2020. So I liked his comments on... Uh, Nobody, nobody builds a just-in-case supply chain. And uh, just to put some mental imagery around what a just-in-case supply chain would be, uh, imagine that you have a factory and your factory produces widgets, uh, you know, small wooden blocks of something that, that gets sold. And imagine that you've got this, uh, this big machine and it was capital intensive, meaning it cost a lot of money to install this machine, what some factories will do and have done over the years is they'll have their primary machine and then they'll have one that's kind of in the corner and it might be an older version of that machine and it collects dust and it, it, it's not used, it's their quote backup or their just in case manufacturer of widgets. So it's a very expensive, uh, but maybe not kept up piece of machinery. And so the idea of a just-in-case uh, machine would be that, well, if the primary machine breaks down, we'll go turn on the, the backup or the old one or the just-in-case machine. And what tends to happen is that you go to turn on that just-in-case machine and, oh my gosh, it, uh, it didn't power up or the engine didn't start. And why is that? Well, we, we, didn't, we didn't ever run that machine or we forgot to take the gasoline out of it or we forgot to adjust it to the new network setup or whatever. And, and so just in case machines 
sort of become useless almost as soon as you tell them uh, or tell your factory that you've got a just-in-case or an outdated or a secondary uh, machine. They almost never work or the, the expense to get that up and running uh, as a backup just becomes uh, uh, enormous and, and not worth investing in. So Phil's uh, uh, commentary on a just-in-case supply chain is just that. You'd have this whole secondary supply chain that you would keep, you know, in mothballs or ready to go. And it it is like that machine. It will almost never work because it's never exercised. Uh, you never try it out. You never test it. And the operational support of that is not uh, a priority to anyone on the operational front lines because the people on the operational front lines they're focused on keeping the supply chain they got up and active. And that is a job in and of itself. Maintaining a secondary for a just-in-case supply chain, nobody gets compensated for that. The people that are that are on your call tree for that just-in-case supply chain, nobody ever calls them. Nobody ever gets paid for that. Uh, if you've got a supplier that is a just-in-case supplier, you know, they're not getting any business from you. So why maintain that? So a just-in-case supply chain is fiction, uh, almost always, and it is unreliable if you try and activate it because you've not maintained it. You've not shown it any love. So I, I agree with them that it is not worth the effort. What is, what is better is to have multiple paths, and, and I think Phil and I talked about that, is, is you maintain multiple paths and you exercise and you keep them both active. Uh, and if you do that, you don't need a just-in-case supply chain, which is fiction and only good for making you feel okay. And at the executive level, it allows you to go to, to, you, to your board of directors or you know, your audit committee and say, hey, you know, let me show you the binder full of secondary supply chain uh, uh, paths. And so it's a feel-good but in, in, in truth and in, in uh, everyday operation, it doesn't really exist. Gotcha. So I'm wondering, is there a way to have a just-in-case supply chain that's not activated until you need to? I'm just thinking back to our last uh, episode and our, our chat about you know, planning for low probability events, and I'm trying to sort of combine these. And I'm just wondering if you know, having a backup supply chain that's maybe not activated so that you're not spending money on it until you need it, but it's there in case a low probability event does happen, then you have the secondary supply chain to fall back on. Am I thinking about that right? Or is there something wrong with that? So you have to ask the motivation of any of the partners that participate in that secondary or just in case supply chain. So let's say that uh, so let's keep this mental image of you've got your factory uh, and you make little widgets, wooden blocks of something, and you have to distribute them. Let's say that you have um, written a contract with DHL as your distribution partner that delivers your widgets from your factory floor to the next step in the chain, maybe a distribution company. And DHL is you know they come in at a low rate so you signed a contract with them and, and they're the ones that show up every day they pick up the boxes of widgets and they deliver them to the next point in the supply chain that is your primary supplier 
And if you don't have UPS or uh, FedEx or somebody else active in your distribution network from you know coming to your factory, picking up the boxes, if you don't have a contract or a relationship with any of them and something bad happens like DHL uh, goes out of business or DHL was hacked and so you know their trucks can't show up today, if you are dependent on DHL and you don't have a contract with uh, FedEx or UPS or somebody else, you don't have a way to distribute product that day and, or however long the DHL outage lasts. So I don't think, uh, so you have to think about how you would keep a relationship with FedEx or UPS if you're not paying them, if you're not exercising them. What's better is that you don't have a, a single sourced uh, uh, part of your supply chain. Uh, um, and we're just picking on this distribution piece from your factory floor. But if you've never had UPS come to your factory dock and pick up your box of widgets and you never paid them, you don't have an exercised secondary supplier. So uh, if, if you think about it in terms of percentage, maybe your, your DHL contract is for uh, uh, you know, picking up 30 boxes a month and you have a secondary relationship with say FedEx and you only give them two boxes a month, you still are getting a cost benefit from your relationship, your primary uh, 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 distribution company with DHL, but you also have an exercised fully operational uh, secondary quote unquote supplier in, in FedEx, if that's your other, uh, the other company coming to pick up the box of widgets. And so if something happens to DHL, you can increase the volume with your secondary supplier without a whole lot of effort, but you have a secondary supplier as opposed to you just have the number for FedEx on somebody's desk and they have to call up and say, hey, we're in this uh, critical time. Our primary supplier uh, for delivery of our widgets is out of business today and uh, we need you to show up. Well, I don't know if you're going to get them to show up that day. So so it's, it's not that you have a dark secondary supplier uh, or distribution company. You just have one that's your primary and you have another one that's active and functional, uh, but they're both operating. You know them both, you know the driver. Uh, and, and I'm making this a very pedestrian example, but you can look at any link in your supply chain and do the same thing. If it's not exercised, if it's not operational, it's not going to be effective when you need it. Got it. And so when when executives are planning for low probability events and you know talking about creating a secondary supply chain or at least parts of a secondary supply chain, what are some of the conversations that executives need to be having uh, when it comes to talking about you know the parts of their supply chain that could break down or just the fragility of supply chain in general? Well, any part of first, any part of your supply chain can break down and, and, and thinking about it that way is important. So whether it's the widget machine on your floor, 
understand that it can break down or any element of that machine can break down and you have to pay attention to it. Because I started my, my education in, in journalism and worked at a student newspaper, you could see everything from uh, the, the ad sales in the front of the house to the actual production in the back of the house of the newspaper. And, and every step of the way, you would think about, well, if the power goes out or if the computer isn't there or if the delivery driver doesn't show up, how do you create a newspaper? And that, that helped me as I went on to Chicago Tribune, where you had these, uh, it was called the traumatic system. And it was this giant mechanism of moving physically paper from the press uh, in the bottom of the plant all the way to the trucks and the, on the ground level. Uh, of the plant. And, and, you know, if the traumatic system went down, you didn't have a mechanism to move the material, the physical material, very heavy material uh, from the, uh, and, and Chicago Tribune is zoned. So you have these, you know, I forget how many zones we had more than a dozen when I was there um, uh, ages ago, but you had to have a, a system to understand how you were going to distribute that physical newspaper to the right zone, to the right truck, if your traumatic system, the mechanism for moving uh, a widget through your plant broke down, you had to think about it. And it was very real and very physical to me uh, as as a young uh, uh, manager in Chicago Tribune, it was very physical, very visible that, hey, this thing breaks down, there isn't another mechanism. Or uh, there's this, you know, we keep this inventory of, of tray parts over here. And if this tray part breaks down, you swap it out. So, so thinking about your, to your question, thinking about every part of your uh, uh, machine, every part of your distribution mechanism, every part of your supply chain in a way that imagines that any part of that can break down at any time and what are we going to do about that? That is an effective way to think about uh, these low probability events. I, I just, by nature of my education and into the workforce, everything that I learned about journalism really was dependent on, is the operation going to deliver my product at the end of the day? Uh, and, and that doesn't mean to put it up on the internet, or it didn't back then, uh, but it does today. And, and so if you're at say Chicago Tribune, if you're not thinking about, hey, if this router goes down, do I have a mechanism to deliver my product to my consumer? If you're not thinking that way, you need to be. And so your question is, how should uh, uh, executives think about that low probability event affecting the nature of their organization? They have to think about their organization in terms of any one part of that breaking down and causing your product to fail to be delivered to a consumer or to whoever's buying it. And what do I do in the event of that that breakdown? There is, and I always uh, advocate for this, there there is a limit that I think you should put on uh, low probability events, meaning do I plan for nuclear holocaust? Well, no, Uh, you've got, You've got bigger problems if the nuclear weapon explodes near your factory. Don't worry about that. But 
worry about does my single machine have backup parts? Does it have, do I have a backup means of producing? Do I have a backup means of delivering that product to the consumer or the next link in the supply chain? So for me, it's, it's sort of human nature, but I don't think it's human nature for everyone to think about each part of the supply chain breaking down. So, uh, you know, my recommendation to an executive thinking about how they deliver product, think about at every level, what happens if this piece doesn't exist? What do I do about that? And, and put some logical or, or uh, rational or reasonable barriers on that, that don't let your team go off and build a whole nother factory, but say, hey, you know, we can do these things that are cost-effective, that are exercised regularly, that we believe we can recover in the event of an outage or a missing part or a broken uh, uh, broken bay door or what have you, and, and think about it that way. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like buying insurance, right? Like everybody should buy insurance, but it's sort of to prepare for the worst case scenario. And that's sort of like having a backup supply chain is a similar sort of thing. Like, you know, there's a likelihood that you'll never have to use this stuff, but also in case something bad does happen, you'll be really glad to have it. So I'm just wondering when a company is starting to plan a backup supply chain or starting to prepare for low probability events, how much of their budget should they dedicate towards a secondary supply chain? You know, keeping in mind that it's most likely uh, most likely machines and supplies that are just going to sit there until an emergency happens. It's, you know, it can be difficult for startups and smaller companies, especially to devote a lot of their budget to things that they're not going to be using right in the moment. Yeah. And if you, if you take it to the, uh, the ultimate example, you end up building a secondary company and that that's absurd. So you, you have to be reasonable in how you invest. And you also should be thinking along the lines of, Hey, if it just sits over there in the corner, is it really going to be useful to me? If it, it if it's got dust, if it becomes outmoded, uh, is that actually a useful investment of, of capital? And oftentimes the answer is no, because it, it's a feel-good thing, but it doesn't, it, it, if we tried to snap it in, it, it, it's aged and it, it will crack and it will break. And so I'm no better off uh, with that part supply in the corner because it's never exercised, it's never used. So you, you should do things and you should invest in things that are part of your normal operation and get swapped in or tested. And whether that's a delivery uh, mechanism or it's a physical part of your manufacturing operations. Do these things get exercised? Do they get tested? Because if it's not tested, it's not useful. And uh, so, uh, you know, you should put rational, uh, logical, reasonable parameters around any effort at resiliency. And really, you know, when we talk about analyzing the impact to your operation from the pandemic, uh, look at really simple things. Uh, were we able to 
shift from having a workforce that went to the office or went to the uh, warehouse every day to moving people to a, a work from home environment? And if not, why not? Uh, well, there's, there's some jobs that you just have to be in the warehouse or you just have to be in the plant. But for those jobs that don't have to be uh, in the office, in the plant, were we able to move them easily to home? And, and what were the impacts? What were the challenges of that? Uh, so, you know, one might be, well, uh, everybody on this team only has desktop computers. Well, if they only have desktop computers, moving that to your home office is difficult. Or maybe they have laptop computers, but there were servers that were only accessible when you were on the trusted local network of your office. Those are simple things to think about and correct. And they fall way short of, should I build a secondary supply chain? Just look at the supply chain and the workers you have supporting it and say, were they able to operate effectively given the fact that they couldn't go into the office? Those sort of very simple things are way short of building a secondary company or a secondary supply chain. And you can address with a mindset that says, hey, low probability event says I can't send people into that office over there. But that low probability event isn't going to show up again because necessarily of another global pandemic, but it could show up because there's a fire in the building next door, or it could show up because there is a some sort of security event or uh, you know some reason that not all of your workforce can attend the office. So are you prepared for that, quote, low probability event that is reasonable and logical to expect could happen again? And, and is my workforce uh, resilient enough to respond to that? I think that's a great note to end on. I, I think sometimes we get so caught up in brainstorming these crazy events, nuclear holocaust that could you know, potentially there's like a 0.0001% chance it could happen. And we, we forget to, you know, start with the simple things, start with the workforce. How is your workforce operating on a day-to-day basis? This is where you should be starting. Start with the basic things um, and, and then work your way up to, you know, to some of the crazier scenarios that you could possibly imagine. Well, thanks so much, John, for another great episode. Thanks listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the original episode that we referenced here. That's episode 35 with Phil Renaud, executive director of the Risk Institute at The Ohio State University. This was, uh, this episode was called Building an Effective Supply Chain in a Non-Steady State that we released on October 28th. Make sure you go back and listen to that full episode for Phil's take. Phil is very knowledgeable in this field, uh, as as John mentioned in the beginning of this episode. And uh, we'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Supply Chain podcast. It's brought to you by Venzi, intelligent product content distribution for enterprise commerce. Learn more and say hello to us at venzi.com. That's V-E-N-Z-E-E.com.